0: Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. In a world of increasing violence and harm, there are committed warriors for peace. In this podcast, we talk with Buddhist practitioner, educator, organizer, activist, movement builder, peacemaker, pilgrim, and healer, Kazu Haga. We first encountered Kazu's work through his book, Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm, My Life and Training in the Nonviolent Legacy of Dr. King, published by Parallax Press in 2020. To quote Buddhist environmental activist Joanna Macy in her endorsement, we need this book like oxygen. In this book and in this podcast Kazu outlines his framework of kinging in principles of nonviolent and that's with no hyphen direct action and the journey from adolescence that brought him to this path along with the many mentors who guided him Kazu discusses the individual and systemic work necessary to prepare for social change and face the legacies of violence he shares stories of the hard work of restorative justice in prisons, in nonprofits, in global movements. Community and coalition building can also be spaces of trauma and harm, and Kazu dives into the obstacles and possibilities of the Kingian concept of beloved community. He speaks of what it means to institutionalize and internalize nonviolence as necessary preparation for external and communal transformative work. With concrete examples and inspiring stories of trainings and his own growth in the process, Kazu illustrates the ongoing journey of the work of harm reduction. He encourages us to step into scary places with courage. Welcome, Kazuhaga, to Nothing Never Happens.
1: Yeah. So thanks so much for having me. Really good to be here. Um, there's there's a lot of things that's happened in my life that's contributed to the work that I do now and my role as a, a teacher, educator in some way, a trainer. Um, I think where I want to start is actually came from a lineage of educators. My great-grandfather is actually the founder of a women's university in Tokyo called Showa Women's University that was founded under the kind of um, inspired by the, the teaching philosophies of Leo Tolstoy, who, of course, went on to influence Gandhi, who went on to influence King, who went on to become such a big influence on me. And my my family was actually disowned. My mother was disowned um, from, from that side of the family when I was seven years old, which is how we ended up moving to the United States. So we lost our connection with that side of the family for a good 15 years of my life. But I just find it so funny that the universe has a way of coming back full circle and I'm now doing this work that's very connected to Tolstoy in some ways and doing this work in education. Um, but the, I think the main thing is when I was 17 years old, I took part in a project called the Interfaith Pilgrimage of the Middle Passage. And this was a, a walking pilgrimage that was sponsored by a Japanese Buddhist monastic order and initiated by Sister Claire Carter, who was a white American nun from that order. And her friend Ingrid Askew, who was an African American artist activist. And the two of them came together and initiated this walking pilgrimage where they were going to lead a group of people walking from Massachusetts down the coast of New Orleans and then eventually down the coast of some parts of Africa to retrace the slave route and to go from the United States back to Africa to begin the process of reversing the legacy of the Middle Passage and to begin the process of healing and reconciling from that from that history. And, you know, as a 17-year-old kid, I'd never done anything like that. But I was just in a place in my life where I was so bored and I was doing nothing with myself. And I heard about this pilgrimage like a week before it started. And on a whim, I told my mom that I would go on it for just the first week. And I ended up leaving home for a year and a half. I spent six months walking to New Orleans on this pilgrimage, and then a year spending time living in their monasteries overseas in India, Nepal, Sri Lanka. And so that pilgrimage changed everything. It was such, I mean, talk about pedagogy. It was such an embodied way of learning about this history that, you know, we all sort of learned about in school. But don't really learn about the the, the depth of the suffering and how that lineage is still very much alive in the culture of the United States of America today. And the economic system and just everything that this country is, is still very much because of the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples and all that history is still with us today. And so... Yeah, Being on that journey, it really reminded me of um, my friend Carlos Avedra always has this thing where he says that history is not something you consume, it's something you have a relationship with. And being, being on that walk and uncovering that history and really in some ways reliving that history every single day with this group of people, just being immersed in it was a way to really understand the history of the United States in a way that I could never have gotten from going to school in a traditional setting. So really grateful for that. And and that's really the the thing that set me off on this journey, what, over 20-some-odd years ago
0: now. Yeah, and from there, uh, you were able to do a deep dive into the Kingian uh, Martin Luther King Jr. principles of um, nonviolence, social change, direct action, all of that. So could you outline for our listeners... Uh, what that journey has been um, into, into King's philosophy.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the Kingian nonviolence philosophy has become the foundation, like the lens through which I view the world, but it actually took another 10 years or so for me to find it. You know, when I came back, so when I went on the pilgrimage, I spent six months going to New Orleans and then spent a year living in those monasteries. And when I came back from that, I I jumped into involving myself in social change movements, but I didn't necessarily have a really strong ongoing relationship with the word nonviolence. That word didn't really mean much to me until 10 years into my career as an activist. I took this two-day workshop called Kingian Nonviolence Conflict Reconciliation, which is a philosophy that was created out of the teachings of Dr. King by some of his closest allies in the movement and You know, by then I had been doing nothing but social change work for 10 years of my life. That's all I've ever done as as an adult. And so I thought I had some idea of what the word nonviolence meant and had some idea of who Dr. King was. But in those two days, I realized that I had no idea what the word nonviolence meant and that most people have no idea who Dr. King actually was and what he stood for. And it completely changed my world. And since then, that was in the fall of 2008, I've been on this endless journey to try to better understand what this word nonviolence means and how to become a better practitioner of it. I think it really helped that, you know, it was was a little tragic, but three months or so after I took that workshop, when my mind was just on fire about understanding nonviolence, a young African-American man named Oscar Grant was shot and killed by the transit police in Oakland, California, where I live. And so I dove into the, the movement in response to that killing. I ended up being on the executive committee of the coalition that came together to respond to that shooting. And it was in that movement that for the first time, like my intellectual curiosity around nonviolence just sank into my heart. And I knew that this worldview was the way that we could bring about sustainable peace and real transformative change in in, in any of these issues that we're fighting around. And so I remember that movement trying to advocate for this newfound understanding of nonviolence. But because I was so new to it, I couldn't quite articulate it. So I realized that I needed to better understand it. And so that summer, I traveled to the University of Rhode Island and met Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who was the co-author of the Kingian curriculum and studied under him and became a trainer in Kingian nonviolence. And that's been a big part of my path ever since. And, you know, it's still after all these years of work, I I wish I had a succinct definition of what I understand nonviolence to be, but it's such a a broad philosophy that it's hard to really capture in a sentence or two. Um, But if I had to, it would be something along the lines of that nonviolence is a way to understand human beings and our relationship with conflict and harm and violence and, and how we heal from that, both as individuals, as well as societies and communities.
2: That's really, that's really great. I'm curious to hear more about kind of how this philosophy and approach influences the trainings um, and teaching, it, just various kind of teaching projects that, that you do, whether that's um, in groups, in prisons, in workshops. Um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how this is manifested in your concrete teaching practices?
1: Yeah, I mean, the most concrete way is that I, I became a teacher in Kingian nonviolence and maybe for the first seven years or so of that part of my life, all I did were in nonviolence trainings. I just did it over and over and over again. And for me, the opportunity to do the same training and teach the same philosophy over and over and over again was an opportunity to, to learn more about this philosophy. Every time I taught, I understood it better. It was a, a great classroom for me right? to have to force myself to find different ways to talk about it, um, to respond to, to questions that came from the audience, things like that. And I think one of the things that I realized about the philosophy is at the core of the philosophy, the essence of nonviolence is this unwavering commitment to what Dr. King called beloved community or what you know, I, I I spend a lot of time being influenced by, by Buddhist teachings. And so in Buddhism, we might call uh, interdependence or anatta. Um, this idea that all life is so deeply interwoven with each other that there is no such thing as individual liberation. There's only collective liberation. And so if I want to be free, then I have to work for the freedom and liberation of even the people who are opposed to me. Right. And and I think that idea is so central nonviolence. And so I've since begun to develop other training curriculums and and do lots of different types of trainings and facilitation. But all of that is guided by this idea that if I want to heal, then I have to support the healing of everyone around me, including those that I uh, disagree with, those that I, you know, uh, before used to see as my quote unquote enemy. Um, and so I think that's, that's a central teaching of nonviolence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. And it's really hard. You know, I find myself when I was reading your book going, ah, yes. And, you know, um, so beloved community, especially, uh, you know, you're working in prisons, you're working with nonprofit, um, activist groups. So, uh, what, What do you see in this hard work of Beloved Community? What are the obstacles and how have you worked through them in some concrete ways?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of obstacles. I think one of the biggest obstacles right now is, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now has to do with understanding collective trauma and understanding how all of us as individuals carry trauma, whether it's our own personal trauma or generational trauma. And we as a species, as collectives have collective trauma and how that impacts the health of our movements and our ability to create transformation. And and I think particularly at this point in human history with the escalation of the climate crisis and coming out of the pandemic, and there's just so much happening in the world that more than ever, we're witnessing a collective trauma response as a species. And you see the impact of that all throughout our society. right? When you see an inability to hold nuance as a society, when you see extreme polarization, when you see really heightened emotions and really strong enemy imaging and things like that, those are all signs of a trauma response, right? Like when our trauma response is triggered, everything becomes black and white and we go into the survival mode. And and I think that's a lot of what's happening throughout society and certainly in our movement spaces. And so a lot of what I see in our movement spaces is that because we oftentimes lack awareness about what's happening in our bodies, both individually and collectively, we're turning that trauma on each other and we're causing a lot of harm within movement spaces that is incredibly damaging. And there's a way in which we have to understand that conflict within movements is just a natural part of what it means to be human, right? And I remember when I was learning nonviolence, Dr. Lafayette once told me that 60% of the conflict you manage will be internal to your own movement, which was really like sad and disappointing to hear. But these days, I actually feel like that's an understatement. I feel like so many movements are spending like 90% of our effort just managing conflicts that are internal to our movements. And I think that's not healthy, right? There's a certain amount that we have to accept that 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 actually is the work, is to figure out how to be with our own people. Um, But I think because of so much collective trauma that we are unaware of, Um, We, we really turn that inward and, and are infighting way too much. And so I think that's one of the, the biggest kind of barriers or obstacles that we face is how do we become more and more aware of what is happening in our own bodies so that we can acknowledge when we are engaged in conflicts that is just part of the natural struggle. But also, how do we acknowledge when we are engaged in conflicts that are coming from a traumatic place that we actually might not be, uh, we might not need to be engaged in, or there may be more skillful ways to engage in?
2: This is a topic and a a sort of thread of conversation that has come up repeatedly in a lot of our recent podcasts, which is about um, kind of group process, self-critique, and um, difficult and difficult dynamics and conflict among groups that at least uh, think that they are on the same page or engaged in an overlapping or shared struggle. So I want to continue asking you questions about this. Um, and I think what I want to ask is whether you have a couple of like very concrete examples of exercises, or interventions that you have used, um, in those contexts to kind of cultivate this kind of body awareness that you are referring to. And maybe your examples are, maybe there's one from sort of setting the stage for group work. Um, but then when it gets, when things get hot, what do you do then? So any, any concrete examples you could, you could provide would be amazing.
1: I think I want to start with the pep work, because as a facilitator who does RJ work, restorative justice work, I think I know that I did a great job when I show up to the actual dialogue between the actual parties. And I don't have to say a word. Right. When we do what are known as victim offender dialogues, um, that which are dialogues between incarcerated people and the people that they hurt. I have been part of dialogues where it took us maybe like two years of conversations with both sides separately before we decided that it was time to bring the two sides together. I think in restorative justice work, you know, because the the, the kind of goal is reconciliation and, and this like image of the two parties coming together in a cer- and sitting in a circle and having dialogue. And because we live in such a goal oriented society, I've seen a lot of restorative justice processes, kind of rush to bring the two sides together before they're perhaps ready to. And I think the biggest part of the work, even if I'm in a in a conflict myself, the biggest part of the work that I can do is to make sure that I'm ready to show up for the dialogue in a good way so that when I'm there, I'm able to speak directly from my heart, but also to have the capacity to listen, right? And so I think we can't underestimate the importance of the preparation work before the dialogue, that that's perhaps even more important than the dialogue itself, ironically. And then when we get to the dialogue, you know, one concrete tool that I really love to use that I learned from uh, one of my mentors, Mickey Kashtan, is a a Venn diagram uh, with relationship structure and skill. And those are the three things that are really necessary to support a difficult dialogue in going well. And my theory is that of those three things, relationship, structure, and skill, you need at least two of those three things to be present for a difficult conversation to go well. So when you're in a conflict or when you're mediating a conflict, I always like to assess what's present. If you're mediating a conflict between two people who have really strong relationships, but they're not necessarily skilled in in conflict transformation work, then you have to really raise the structure by bringing in a skilled facilitator or by having a tight agenda or using a talking circle or something like that. So now you have the relationship and the structure. If um, the two people are really skilled, but they don't have a lot of relationship, then what kind of structure can you bring in to to really heighten and strengthen the relationship? And so by trying to assess, like, okay, is the relationship there? How skilled are they? How much structure do you need? And based on what's missing, you can adjust the other two. And so that's a really concrete tool that I found to be really useful in in helping to create um, space for actual dialogue
0: to happen. Uh, Yeah. So. When you create this space, do you have any any stories that are particularly have been particularly meaningful for you as you look back that were um either really, really difficult or and didn't end well, maybe, or those that were difficult and, and did come to a conclusion?
1: Yeah, no, I got lots of stories. Um I, I think the The dialogue that I got to be a part of that I continue to think back to the most was a dialogue between Richard and Cynthia. Uh, Richard is an incarcerated person serving a life sentence for a homicide that he committed over 20 years ago. And Cynthia is the mother of the young man that he killed. Years ago, Cynthia reached out to us through an organization that I work with called the Ahimsa Collective um, because you know, 20 years after her son's murder, she was ready to to come face to face with Richard and to have a conversation with him. And it, this one took maybe about six months of prep um, with, with both sides. And I, I still remember the day that we finally brought them together when, you know, we walked Cynthia into the prison and sat her down in the room that the dialogue was gonna happen in. And I got up and went around the corner to get Richard. And Richard was, he was already shaking. And I sat down next to him and put my hand on his shoulder and, and, uh, you know, got him settled a little bit. And we finally stood up and he turned the corner into the hallway where he saw Cynthia on the other side, at at the end of the hallway. And as soon as he saw Cynthia, he just completely broke down and almost just collapsed on the floor. And I remember watching Cynthia just slowly stand up and open her and they just embraced in this hug that felt like it lasted for a year Um, and then they just sat down and talked for eight hours and my co-facilitator bonnie and i didn't have to say a word except for take like four hours into the dialogue bonnie said do you all need a break or anything (laughs) i think that's the only thing we said the whole eight hours and there were moments in that dialogue that was just magic there was a moment when cynthia was holding richard's hands and she said, I had a dream the other night that I needed to hold your hands because these are the hands that took my son's life away and I needed to have a different relationship with them. Now, there's there this moment where um, Richard took off, they're, they're both indigenous, and Richard took off his, his medicine pouch that he always wore with him. For years and years in the prison, he wore with him. And he gave it to Cynthia because he said that he wanted to have a different relationship with them, and wanted to gift him something, or gift her something. And, you know, all of these magical things happen for eight hours straight. And, and it's dialogues like that that make me really believe in our resilience as human beings and what's possible. Like there's so many conflicts, even like conflicts that I'm in that I, that I, that I feel like are petty compared to what they went through. That I sometimes feel like, oh, this is never going to get resolved. Right? Like I'm never going to be able to heal with this person. I'm never going to be able to forgive this person. And then I think about Cynthia and Richard. And I'm like, okay, if that's possible, then healing at any level, at any scale, on any instance of harm, I think is possible. And so I always think of that story to to kind of renew my my faith in humanity and what we're capable of, you know.
2: Azu, would you say more about what the prep work for that conversation or other conversations entailed? I'm... Because obviously there was, there must have been so much that had to go into even getting into that room.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll say with with that particular dialogue, it actually didn't take that much because both of those two people had already done so much work on their own before we met them, that I really do feel like in Richard and Cynthia's case, I I still remember the first day that I met Richard, I told uh, Bonnie, my co-facilitator, I was like, this dialogue could probably happen tomorrow. You know, and I think both of them, when I talk to them about it, really point to the, their commitment to their spiritual practice as what really supported them. But oftentimes it's not that easy. A lot of it is just slowing both parties down to really listen and to really hear their stories and to validate everything they are feeling and everything they are going through. I have this philosophy that if you are able to slow down enough to hear someone's story, then everything they do makes sense. And obviously, it doesn't condone a lot of what people do. But if you can understand their stories, then it begins to get much easier to have empathy and compassion for the things that they did do. And I think a lot of people, particularly incarcerated people who are labeled as criminals and are labeled even in these dialogues, they're labeled as like the the one that did the wrong thing, right? the one that committed the harm. I think because of that that tendency to label people in our society, they've never been validated for the experiences that they've had of being harmed. You know, uh, Mariam Kaba, who's a transformative justice activist, says that Nobody enters violence for the first time by committing it. And so by giving space for people to share their story and for us to be able to validate the complete wholeness of who they are, I think they it becomes much easier to have dialogues with the person that caused them harm or the, or, or, or that they harmed and just show up not as, quote-unquote, a criminal or a monster, but as human beings, and you know, I always say that I think restorative justice work at its best begins to bore the line between who did the harm and who experienced the harm and can get to this nuanced place of just acknowledging that there is harm present, that we are all hurting here, that there is no way to live in this oppressive society that we live in without being impacted by that without having our soul impacted by the injustice and the violence and the destruction and the isolation and, and everything that we live with as human beings. And I think the work that we do is about creating that space where the binary goes away. And we can both just sit at the table and just say, where are you hurting? And how can I see you in that? Right. And so I think as as a facilitator, I, I like to think that that's one of my my roles is to be able to create space to say, I can see that you've been hurt, too. right?
0: Yeah. And and you do this work with um, in prisons. Uh, how did you come to get into that work, um, you know, doing the work in prisons?
1: Yeah, I mean, it started with the Middle Passage pilgrimage, right? Because that pilgrimage was all about not just what happened during enslavement, but what is the living legacy of that? And on that pilgrimage, I remember we stopped at several prisons along the route and offered prayers outside of the prisons and talked about how prisons is in so many ways an extension of the new Jim Crow, which is an extension of um, the slave system. And so I always had this understanding that if we are going to heal any of the the wounds of racism that manifest today, we have to go all the way back and understand those lineages. Um, And then when I came back from my year abroad, after the the pilgrimage, uh, a lot of the movements that I got involved in were um, movements to either reform or abolish the criminal justice system, to fight for the rights of political prisoners, things like that. And then when I started getting involved in nonviolence, you know, it's like, who understands better the impact of violence than the people in our criminal justice system? And who better to lead a movement to change the culture of violence in this society than those people? And so I think the work to empower and uplift the stories and the voices of incarcerated people is a really critical part of the story if we're going to, to create a culture of peace in our society.
0: Yeah, and, and Michelle Alexander um, endorses your book, which is pretty exciting as Joanna Macy and many others. But yeah, you can see the direct line uh, from her new Jim Crow work um, and theories. Absolutely.
2: We're talking a lot right now about kind of cultivating a kind of empathy of nonviolence towards, towards people who experience harm, which that is all of us, and who who do harm, which is all of us. You also talk about in your book righteous indign- indignation and cultivating righteous indignation as part of this work of nonviolence and transformation. I'm curious about how anger and, and righteous indignation in your words um, fits overlaps with and relates to this work of ahimsa, nonviolence um, and 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 radical care.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I oftentimes talk about how I think Dr. King was actually one of the most pissed off people in the country because right? he was upset, he was angry about racism and militarism and materialism and and so many of the injustices of the world. And I think it's a common misnomer that people believe that nonviolence is about teaching people not to be angry. I think that's really dangerous because, you know, you just said, like, we've all experienced harm and righteous indignation. Like indignation is a righteous response, particularly to witnessing harm as a result of injustice. Right. And I think it's really important that we not cast judgment on our anger and end up repressing it. Like in a lot of nonviolent communities, I see a lot of bypassing, spiritual bypassing, that just is a cover for repressing our anger and pretending that it's not there. Anger is a beautiful gift that points to something being deeply wrong, right? it's, It's telling us something, that something is off. And the energy of anger can be incredibly motivational and inspiring to like get us off of our cushions and and into the streets and, and committing to a process of social change. And I think it's really important that movements do a better job creating more and more safe containers for our anger to emerge so that what oftentimes feels like blind rage and fury, like this dangerous anger that can burn down everything in its path, can kind of settle down into charcoal and it's those charcoals that we bring into the streets with us because it's much, the charcoal is much more contained and we can control the uses of it, right? But it still connects us with this really powerful force. I think what's really important when we work with rage and when we work with anger is to learn to separate hatred with anger because oftentimes those things come conflated when we are able to separate hatred and ill will from our rage, then it becomes righteous indignation, right? We're not angry and wanting to hurt somebody. We are angry because the people that we love and the things that we love are being harmed. And we are putting our bodies on the mind because we want to protect those things, the things, the people, the values that matter to us. And I think that is a skillful use of anger that we need to be better at, definitely within nonviolent communities. Um, because again, because of the misnomer that nonviolence is about teaching people not to be angry, I think we're not always good at cultivating um, what what I think is a really important and powerful emotion.
0: Yeah, uh, to get back to, <sighs> I kind of link that to uh work in in nonprofit groups um uh and and other in prisons and and the other places where you teach um is is there any conflict that is you talk about that no conflict is too large for us to transform have you seen something or do you see something in society right now that that seems um like a, a too big of an obstacle or are you you know hopeful that there's there's a way you just have to um, spend the time uh, and the work to wait for those you know cracks in the dominant structure or whatever to um, emerge?
1: Yeah, you know I used to talk about wanting to develop a 250 year work plan um, and and I'm pretty serious about that idea because I think this is generational work. And I think it's really important for us to keep that in mind, like keep things in perspective that we have been investing in violence for thousands and thousands of years. That beloved community is not going to happen overnight. And I think when I remember that this is generational work, and that I don't have to do it all right now on my own it lifts this burden and it opens up this, this wealth of possibilities. So I do not think that there is any conflict that we are incapable of resolving once we remember that we have generations and, and generations that's going to come after us, that's going to continue the work. I will say that um, I've come around on the climate crisis. You know, I, I think like many of us, when I started getting involved in climate work, I had, I don't know if I could articulate it in my mind, but I had this idea that we have to stop climate change. And that's clearly not going to happen. There's a certain level of destruction that is inevitable, that's going to continue to escalate. And in a lot of the communities that I work with, I think we've changed our tune in what our kind of goal around that is. And I think these days we're talking a lot more about Our goal and our work being to remind people that even in the midst of social and ecological collapse, even as the world is burning around us, it's still possible to create beauty and it's still possible to affirm life and it's still possible to build community. And maybe that's all we can do. Maybe there are things that we're never going to be able to stop. But we shouldn't give up on on creating beauty right and 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 so I really changed my tune in terms of like what am I trying to do in response to the climate crisis um, and I think it's really just about continuing to remind people that no matter what happens, it's still worth it to create beauty and to build community.
2: That's really resonant. Your first comment that you just said about making a 250-year plan and being so um, ambitious and maybe sort of a control freak, uh, that's my words, not yours, um, to get there reminds me of something Loretta Ross said when we interviewed her a couple of episodes ago. You are not the chain of freedom. You're a link in the chain of freedom and trying to control what a future generation is going to do or what a previous one, like we're links in the chain. And so how do we build those links? I, um, so I, I was, I'm thinking about that. I also think that this, this meditation you just offered on, on climate change is, is so important, um, that having, mourning and recognizing the really hard and sad and anger producing reality that we're in doesn't have to be a negation of transformational work. And I think often when I sort of talk about grief or mourning or rage um, or a sense of even hopelessness or pessimism in in a movement space, sometimes that I hear folks conflating that with uh, a level of resignation about struggle or to say like a, a level of pessimism equates to throwing up your hands. Um, and I'm curious if, you know, you could comment on on that connection. Have you seen that? What is the, what's the effect of that kind of um, thinking on, on movements?
1: Yeah, so we've actually been doing more and more grief work in our activism, what I I don't really like that word oftentimes, but um in our organizing because I actually think it's our it's oftentimes our inability to grieve, especially to grieve in community that brings about pessimism. I think as a society we suck at grieving. And what even things like the climate crisis we we see the news, we see the reports, not even the reports, but we oftentimes look out the window and we see the impact of climate crisis and we're not, not able to grieve. We just repress it and we pretend that everything is fine. And I think it's out of that inability to really say, I am scared. I don't know what is happening. I don't know what to do. I am confused. And to really allow ourselves to go to that place. It's our inability to do that where um, pessimism comes up. And my experience is that when we are able to gather in community and to be scared together and to be able to be angry together and to be able to be lost together and to actually honor the fact that we are feeling those things, when we are able to do that, then like a light opens up and it's much easier for us to, to see the path forward. And so I think um, it's really important for people who are doing social change work to really create more and more explicit spaces for us to honor these really difficult, intense feelings like grief and like rage in a safe container where it can be held, it can be witnessed, it can be honored. And I think without doing that, um, it's really easy to be pessimistic or just to keep spinning the wheels and, and being involved in movements that aren't actually having the, the the depth of impact that we need to be having.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've been following what's happened or happening in Atlanta with uh, the Stop Cop City movement. Um, it, it sort of relates, I think, to, um, you know, the the Oakland um shooting um, and the aftermath and the defund the police movement and Black Lives Matter and all of that. Um, uh, yeah, we're we're in a space of grieving because our city council voted uh, in favor of going ahead with it. And it's connected not only with the militarization of police and connected with Israeli defense force training through Georgia State University, but also our tree canopy and South River pollution i mean it's it's a major climate um change um so um so where is my question <laughs> uh, where in all of that i mean we are grieving right now um uh where in your own work um with the you know seeing the more militarization and violence of police it just keeps coming you know one shooting after another after another um, how do you grieve and 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 grieve collectively and and find hope out of that a way out of that
1: so you know as i have individual practices as well um, oftentimes you know especially i'm actually in taiwan right now as we're recording this. And it's interesting watching the news in Taiwan because every time I turn on the news, it's always a car accident. And it's, it's just like a minor car accident. And they send live reporters to the scene to interview witnesses. And, and it's so different than the United States because the level of violence in the United States is so extreme that you hear about mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. And it's barely a blip on the radar anymore. And I remember, um, was it last year? little over a year ago when the school shooting happened in Uvalde, Texas I was on the road when it happened I was going from workshop to workshop and so I heard about it on the news but I feel like because I was on the run I couldn't really sit with it and to really process what just happened and so when I got home after my my travels I spent some time in my bedroom and I looked up the story and found the picture of every young person that was shot and killed and and, and read their story and gave myself time to actually be with it and to cry and to to grieve because I realized that I was becoming numb to all of these stories. And so I've since picked up the practice where every time I I hear about whether it's a mass shooting or just a, a, a person getting killed in Oakland, I do what I can to actually find that person's story and to look at their picture and to put their picture up on my altar and to really be with it every single time so I know that I'm not growing numb to it. And then in some of the communities that I'm part of, um, I, uh, we've, we're considering organizing a regular monthly grief ritual where every month we know, everyone knows, once a month to come to this space together and we can grieve everything that has happened in the past month that we, we haven't actually had time or or space to really process and to say the names of those that we lost and to, to, to have um, space for us to be witnessed in our grief and to be held in our grief. And so I think institutionalizing those practices, right, like having those regular practices built into the rhythm of our community and our social life is really important, that, that social change work isn't just about going out there and protesting and trying to change policy and legislation, but it's really about making sure that when we do go out into the streets and when we're protesting, that our heart is clear about why we are there and what the the emotions are and the feelings are that are driving us to those protests.
2: Hazer, you're really causing me to reflect on some teaching experiences I've had recently um, I had a I taught a class called Organized Solidarity in Theory and Practice that there were many many fruitful conversations and relationships that grew out of it and the class I think was embattled by a level of sort of conflict and tension and sort of hardening within the group that I just, I as a facilitator was not able to help folks move through in the way that I wish I had been. And then I compare this to a class I taught a couple of years ago in the, it was about a year into the COVID pandemic called Lost Grief and Activism. And we were covering related topics, they're different community partnerships, different levels of class, different groups of students, no overlap between them. But, and folks came to lost grief activism for a lot of different reasons, but I think they were, most most of the students were drawn because they were grieving something. And some of them were grieving a parent or a sibling who was framed politically, climate grief, grief over anti-Black violence, and grief over the massive um, loss losses of of COVID and I yeah this is less of a question and more of just a reflection back to you that the community that we were able to build in that first class through really serious conflict that I thought was going to bring me to my knees on the class to its knees a few weeks in um that perhaps the, the the intention and the the shared willingness to that, like coming to the class, was an admission of vulnerability. Um, in a way that maybe we weren't so vulnerable individually, emotionally, with each other in the organized class, um, because of because of the framing, because of the 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 kinds of dynamics that can create when people want to show up. To be good organizers, but not necessarily um, because they've connected with the underlying thing that's driving them towards that. So I guess I'm curious about one thing that I that I've heard a lot um, in organizing communities and classrooms among colleagues is is a fear about bringing those raw parts of the self of vulnerability, particularly for people who are any number, experiencing any number of forms of institutional violence and oppression already. What does it mean to make room in spaces that are not built for you um, for a level of rawness? And where can that go? And how, as a facilitator, do you hold that and or even convince people whoever they are that this is a process worth doing
1: yeah i'm a a scorpio so i love going to those those deep dive places you know um i think there's a way in which all people are clamoring for that space right because we are all holding so much and of course a lot of us are afraid of going to that space but beneath the fear is the desire to get to that place i've seen time and time again when we set up a container that feels safe enough people in our society right now are so ready to dive in and it's always going to be scary right um there's a, a an incarcerated nonviolence trainer that i work with in soldad prison in the central valley in california And he once said to me, he was actually facilitating the workshop, and he said to the audience, you know, I'm serving a life sentence for a homicide. And I realize now that killing somebody didn't take any courage at all. That that homicide was an act that was based entirely on my fear of not belonging. And that the most courageous thing that I ever did was to show up to these self-help groups in the prison and open up and be vulnerable and to share all of who I am. But that took more courage than anything I'd ever done. And the first principle of Kingian nonviolence is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. And it's that way because it takes courage to go out to demonstrations and risk getting arrested and tear gassed and all those things. But there's a way in which I feel like the inner work of self-transformation of nonviolence of doing the work of purifying our own hearts of hatred and resentment and working on our shadows and our fears and our traumas, that is the most courageous aspect of the work of nonviolence. And it is the work of nonviolence. I think if we're going to ask society to transform its darkest histories, then we have to be willing to look at our darkest histories. If we're asking society to transform and heal its shadows, then we have to be willing to transform our shadows. And so I think a lot of the work of social change has to start with the commitment for all of us to do that scary thing and to talk about the things that we don't want to talk about and to have that conversation with our family that we don't want to have and to look at the shadows that we don't, we have that we don't want to look at. I think if we're not willing to do that, then we're not in a place where we can point the finger and demand society heal its deepest wounds. Right? So I think as as trainers, as facilitators, as educators, part of our work is building the scaffolding so that people are ready for that. You know, if they're not ready to to, to dive into talking about their deepest wounds, then what are the, the the smaller weights that we can start to give people to build up the capacity to build up those muscles so we can eventually talk about the most difficult things?
0: Yeah, and this has reminded me of the, the working title of your next book that I'm really excited to see, uh, Fierce Vulnerability, because um, that's what you're talking about, and that's really hard. and. Um, You have to do the individual work and then the community work. And it's hard to step into those spaces. So what do you say to people who are like me? Sometimes, um, you know, with some colleagues, I think there's there's it's hopeless. (laughs) There's there's, you know, narcissistic gaslighting or, or whatever, you know, misogyny, you know, those big patriarchal, you know mountains out there um what do you say to people about how to how to coax and cultivate a a way into that
1: yeah i mean a couple of things obviously there's so many people that i've worked with inside the prison system that at some point in their lives people would have looked at and say oh these people can never change and now a lot of these people are some of the most dedicated peace workers i have ever met in my entire life Right? And so to, to believe that we are all capable of healing and transformation, and that we all are deserving of that. At the same time, I don't think that we will ever reach Donald Trump. right? Like I don't think Donald Trump in, in this lifetime is ever gonna be transformed and healed and become this loving, accepting person. That's not necessarily what I'm working toward but i do know that when i am in movement spaces that are opposing the things that trump is is representing and that trump is doing that i still think that we can engage in those movements in a way that sees trump for what he is because as someone who works with trauma worker with, with with trauma survivors when i look at donald trump i see a deeply deeply broken wounded, scared, insecure human being. Like, that's who I see. And I can have some amount of empathy for how broken he is and how far removed he is from his own sense of humanity and how far he's removed himself from the interwoven web of humanity. Like, I can have some compassion for that. And I'm going to do everything I can to stop everything that he's advocating for but while doing that, I want to hold his humanity. And me holding his humanity might not transform him, but it actually does something to me, right? It allows me to put my full self into this movement without being weighed down by my own resentment and without forgetting that I am a part of this interwoven web of humanity. Because if, if Trump is not, then that means I'm not either. But if we, if I am a part of this interwoven web of humanity, then that means all people are, right? We're either interdependent or we're not. Like I wrote in my book, like the universe doesn't weave separate webs of interdependence based on political affiliation, right? We either believe in interdependence or we don't. And so by engaging in these movements, knowing that Trump is part of that web, it might not heal him, but it does do something to me that matters.
2: Yeah, it, this goes back to the all your writing and what we've already talked about, uh, about interrupting this false binary between good people and bad people, harmers and harmed, um, that in in fact, in addition to the self-transformation, it does something to me to remember the humanity of the person I am doing everything I can to stop that indulging in the fantasy that I have not committed harms that are resonant with maybe in micro ways, uh, but maybe in macro ways. I don't know. The harms that someone like Donald Trump or whoever are producing lets me off the hook too, and it makes it too easy to create a kind of cathartic like scapegoating of someone else that prevents the deep self-critique and transformational process that, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, we've highlighted that movement workers have to engage in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a great fantasy to, to, that we all want to live in, right? That we don't cause harm. But I think once we start committing to doing our own shadow work, then it actually also becomes easier to have compassion for other people because we realize how messed up we are, <laughs> right? Like I'm very well aware of my shadows and how much more work I want to do on myself. And that makes it a lot easier to have compassion for other people too, because we're all just trying to do our best. We're all on our journey, you know, and we're all messing up in these beautiful human ways.
2: Hazu, we want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about your, your book that's coming out, Fierce Vulnerability, Direct Action That Heals. Tina already mentioned it. Will you tell us how you came to write the, how you came into this book writing process and Tell us, give us a little bit of a a preview.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So fierce vulnerability is, it came out of this conversation that my friend Chris Moore Backman and I were having for many, many years about the word nonviolence and how problematic it is because there's so many misunderstandings about it that a lot of people, the moment that they hear the word nonviolence, they stop listening to us, right? (laughs) And so we're always saying, we just have to find another word and once we get people in the door, then we can talk about whatever we want. But for marketing purposes, let's try to call it something else. And ultimately, we decided not to do that. We decided to continue to use the word nonviolence and to do the work of re-educating people about it. But during that conversation, these words, fierce vulnerability, entered our lexicon, and it kind of took on a life of its own. And when we first started exploring it, we didn't know what it meant. But we decided, because we're trainers, we're like, let's just put together a two-day workshop on fierce vulnerability and we filled that workshop within 48 hours of announcing it and we did it again and we did it again and then we we got an invitation to do a fierce vulnerability weekend for 250 people up north and it, it just kind of spiraled and so we've now done this workshop fierce vulnerability dozens of times all around the country and we're finally starting to understand a little bit of what it means. So I've decided to write about it to try to put it more on paper. And I think a lot of what it is, is understanding the relationship between trauma and injustice and being able to see social injustice as a manifestation of collective trauma. And so everything I've learned about healing from my own trauma healing journey Trying to take those lessons and apply it at scale, understanding that even when we engage in nonviolent direct action, ultimately what we're trying to do is to heal collective wounds. And so can we look at at even things like nonviolent direct action as a modality of collective trauma healing? That one of the biggest interventions that I had to do in my own personal healing journey was to have... A really difficult and scary conversation with my family about my early childhood traumas. And it took me eight years of therapy and meditation retreats and journaling and going to workshops to build up the skills and the, and the courage to have that conversation with them. Right. But that's what I needed to have is I needed, if I were going to heal my wounds, I needed to go all the way back and heal my childhood wounds. When we look at things like racial healing and reconciliation in the United States. What we're trying to do is to have a conversation with our collective family called the United States about our collective childhood wounds, right? The United States early in its collective childhood experienced traumatic things, Mm -hmm. enslavement, genocide, indentured servitude, all these things. And these are legacies that we've never tried to heal from, never really actively talked about as a country. And so we've been repressing this traumatic memory for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when you repress traumatic memories, it seeps out in all of these perverted ways. And so all of the the issues that we're facing today around race and, and economic injustice and poverty and all of these things, are just surface level manifestations of a much deeper core wound. And so when we talk about racial healing, what we're talking about is having to go all the way back and open up these traumatic stories of experiences that we share together. And so when we are doing social change work, that's what we're ultimately trying to do is to create space for the country to have a conversation about really difficult things that it's perhaps never talked about. And so as we engage in social change work, how do we do it in a way that is most conducive to people feeling safe enough to talk about the scariest things? So that's a little bit of, of what we're exploring in Fierce Vulnerability is, you know, what can we learn from our own personal trauma healing journeys, restorative justice dialogues about what it takes to heal trauma and how do we um, scale that up? And and what does that relationship look like in the context of social change movements, direct action movements, things like that?
0: Yeah, thank you, Kazu. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to to mention at this point before we ask the last question?
1: No, I don't think so. I can't think of anything.
0: Okay, Lucia, you want to ask the last question?
2: This is our standard question. What are you reading, listening to, watching, consuming, thinking about that you would like to recommend to our audience?
1: So I'm always reading multiple things. Um, So right now I'm, I'm just finishing up reading Pachinko, finally. Um, brilliant book really speaks to the impact of intergenerational trauma. And also, as a Japanese person myself, to really deeper, deep, more, more deeply understand the impact of the actions of my people. Right? Um, really beautiful. And I, you know, it's amazing. I was talking to my partner about it the other day. I, was, I don't know why beautiful stories have to make you feel. Feels so terrible like it is a devastatingly sad book but there's something so beautiful about reading about people's struggles right so i'm really enjoying pachinko i'm also reading um, jonathan heights the coddling of the american mind uh, which is a few years old but i think does an incredible job of articulating and giving some reasons of why some of the breakdowns are happening in particularly a lot of our movement spaces and our progressive spaces. Um, so that's an incredible book I'm really enjoying. And then I'm rereading the Lotus Sutra, which is kind of like my home sutra. I chanted it um, every day for, for many, many years as a young as a younger person. So um, having wisdom that's been around for 2,500 years has been really comforting for me in, in times of uncertainty. So Yeah, Pachinko, The Coddling of the American Mind, and The Lotus Sutra are the three things that I'm reading and
0: would recommend all three. Nina? Okay, I want to recommend a novel that I just read by an East German author, uh, Jenny Erpenbeck. Uh, It's called Go, Went, Gone. It's about uh, an East German classics professor at a university there who retires and his wife has died, and anyway, um, the wall is down, um, and he gets involved with a group of of African asylum seekers um, in in a German language class, and it's it's a lovely, lovely book, very well written and very well translated. Um, so, Jenny Erpenbeck, Go Went Gone, and then the other thing that I've just um, been binging on this summer is uh, Severance uh, Apple TV. Uh, It's about (laughs) the work-life balance. And if you sign on to this company, you get a thing implanted in your brain where you don't know anything about your home life when you're at work. And when you pass out, you don't know anything about your work life and sort of the ethical mess of that. It, it's it's really, it's very interesting and got great acting. Patricia Arquette, amazing. Anyway, those are my recommendations. Okay, Lucia.
2: I am currently reading Kiese Layman's memoir called Heavy, which I had been on my list for a long time and it finally came off my uh finally I finally am off the wait list for the book and the ebooks ebook app on my library over my library. Um the book is beautifully written. It won a ton of awards. And I guess what I would say about it, this conversation is making me think about it, that layman kind of through narrative, but not a narrative that is ever cleaned up or tied up in a bow. It's sort of messy from start to finish is able to express the entanglements between the histories of anti-black violence and terror in this country and how that reverberates in and is shaped through and healed by sometimes but not always the kind of intimate violences that show up in family, um family life, and that are also visited upon the body. So it's a it's also a meditation on, um, weight on embodiment on eating disorders and food and what it means to feed oneself and, and be fed and nurtured and cared for um anyway it's a, it's a really it's a really um gorgeous and hard book that i would highly recommend
0: Kazu haga thank you so much for being with us for this conversation um Uh, We've learned a lot, and we're going to continue to learn from you. And I look forward to you coming to Atlanta to do a workshop.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed with Lance and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is by Akrasis. It's called Paralysis Chatterbox, and it's from their CD, Children Singing in Hell, available on bandcamp.com. Beats and Trumpet, performed by Mark McKee, raps and guitar by Max Bowen. After nearly six years of running the Radical Pedagogy podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance, and for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on Patreon.com.